just want to admit to a milestone birthday. In your Bibles, you're going to be in Isaiah 61 in a little bit. I think uh, inside the bulletin, it tells you what page that is. I don't remember anymore. Uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 920, but I could be wrong. Before we get to Isaiah chapter 61, I want to start off with, uh, it's, it's good news, but we're going to start off by talking about sin. Uh, so I'm going to give you a quote about sin, and then we're going to talk about a particular person. We'll play a little game of who am I. Uh, you can see if you can figure out who this person is. But the anonymous quote goes like this. No matter how many new translations of the Bible come out, people still sin the same old way. Uh, it doesn't mean you never, whether you're using an old King James, a new King James, the English Standard, whatever Bible version you have, people still sin the old same way, or the same old way. So now, the game of who am I, I'm going to give you a series of quotes, uh, somebody who had some opinions about sin, and if you think you know who it is at the end, you can, you can give it a guess. The first, this is a famous person, by the way, he, he hailed from Kansas. He lived from 1893 to 1990, so he lived to the ripe old age of 96. This person said, and this is, a, this, I'll start off with a good quote, this really isn't about sin, uh, but just to let you know, even where at the end of the day I'm going to disagree with this person in some significant ways, truth is still truth whether it comes from an unlikely source or not. So this person said when he was asked how he would recommend, what he would recommend to a person who, was, who felt a nervous breakdown was coming on, his advice was this, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks and find someone in need and do something for him. That's not bad advice. That's not bad advice. This person also said, what's done to children, they will do to society. What's done to children, they will do to society. This person said, love cures people, both the ones who give it and the ones who receive it. What cures people? Love. This person said, our lives are shaped by those who love us as well as those who refuse to love us. So he had a lot to say about love. Love is the answer. And then uh, when he was asked on one particular occasion to name the mistake most common to all mankind, all humankind, what is our greatest mistake? His answer was two words, feeling guilty. Our greatest mistake is that we feel guilty. Anybody want to guess who this is? Live 96 years old from Kansas. Famous American. You'll know the name when you hear it. Who? Who? Nope. 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 I'll give you a little bit more, uh, a few more, another round of clues. This person wrote a very influential in American culture and society. He wrote a good number of books. His first book was called The Human Mind. And in this book, he argued that the mentally ill really, how do he put it, were only slight, slightly different from healthy individuals. That's probably pretty true. He wrote uh, another book called The Crime of Punishment, where he believed that uh, punishment, uh, our, our whole penal system, is basically an inefficient relic of the past. Uh, so he, he really downplayed the way that we punish people in our culture and society. He wrote books called The Vital Balance 
man against himself, and love against hate. I think I read somewhere, although when I went back to try to find exactly where I read it, I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure this week I read that this person is sometimes called the Dean of American Psychiatry. Anybody know who it is? Topeka, Kansas, 96 years old. Dr. Carl Menninger. Dr. Carl Menninger believed love was the answer. There's an institute of psychiatry still very famous in Topeka, Kansas, uh, that he actually started, and it's named after him. What's surprising about Dr. Carl Menninger is one of the last books he wrote, not the absolute last, but one of the very last books. It might have been the next to the last. It was kind of hard to find. I can't remember what I found. But it was one of the last books he wrote, 1973. He wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? I wouldn't have guessed that. Whatever Became of Sin? I was half tempted to play a Steve Taylor song. How many know who Steve Taylor is, contemporary Christian musician? Oh, Chris does. He, uh, Steve Taylor sang a song, whatever, whatever Happened to Sin. But it's a little bit rocky. It's a little bit, it probably wouldn't have gone real well with genre of songs that Darwin just picked out for us. Uh, and I couldn't show the video yet anyway. We're not quite there yet. So, so I spared you that song. But Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book, Whatever it Became of Sin. Well, he kind of explains. He works his way through the book, and I have not read the book. I read what other people said he said in the book, so I'm taking them at their word rather than having primary source material. But Dr. Carl Menninger said that sin wound up being redefined as as crime. Instead of sin, we're going to talk about crime, so that crime has to do with crimes against one another, and less so sin against this God or whatever higher higher power. So instead of talking about sin, he saw in in American psychiatry in American culture we started we started referring to everything as crime. Which, if you juxtapose this against something in Scripture, I would say that David, when he confessed his sin before God in Psalm fifty-one, do you remember what David said? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David believed that that ultimately all crime is a subset of sin against God. It starts with sin against God. Dr. Carl Menninger said, no, it's crimes against one another. And then from that step of crimes against one another, he viewed these crimes as symptoms, external symptoms of which we... They affect us, but they're not really who we are. They're symptoms of a deeper problem, of a, of a deeper deprivation, of something wrong inside of us that we have these symptoms that evidence themselves as crimes against one another. This is the way he outlines it in his own book. He talks about uh, the ascendancy of this, this new morality, this new culture, this new way of thinking where where we're not talking about sin, we're talking about crimes, and we're talking about symptoms. Uh, we've, we've dismissed sin, this idea of sin, and we dismiss these harsh ideas of, of punishment. And instead of ministers and instead of a gospel, we have psychiatrists and psychotherapy to help people cope and to be, to be healthy individuals. Healthy is a big word in psychiatry. Uh, the theological category of sin was replaced by a psychological category of sickness. Many of you are familiar with that. 
what the Bible often terms as sin, psychiatry terms as a sickness, as a symptom. It's something affecting you, but it's not, we're not talking so much about categories of right and wrong and morality, they're sicknesses. Now, our culture has gotten so far where now we don't hardly call sin not only sickness, we don't even call it sickness, we just call it your own expression. Dr. Carl Menninger also said, this is in 1973 in this book, so this is, uh, well, he's talking about 20 years ago. He says that no American president has mentioned sin in a public speech since 1953. So Menninger concluded, quote, as a nation, we officially ceased sinning 20 years ago. And that was in 1973. Now, I haven't listened to all presidential speeches since then. I kind of doubt we've had presidents talk much about sins since 1973. So I guess as Americans, we've stopped sinning for a lot longer than what Carl Menninger could possibly imagine. It's very interesting, though, because, again, the title of the book is Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. So he describes how sin disappeared in the book. This is a quote. He writes, when I was a boy, sin was still a serious matter. And the word was not a jocular term. Jocular meaning playful or jesting. Like now, in, uh, in our culture now, if you're talking about sin, it's like a joke. You know, <laughs> it's a sin. But he said, in my day, growing up, it was a serious matter, this idea of sin. But I saw this change. I saw it go. I'm afraid I even joined in hailing its going. Dr. Carl Menninger, answering the question, whatever it became of sin, he's, he, he acknowledges, I participated in, in the removal of sin, and I was glad to see it go, at least at that point in the book. He then goes on to say, uh, while he, he believes he, he lauds the entrance of psychiatry and psychology into American culture, but then he goes on to say, I regret sin did not survive the transition. Sin did not survive the transition. So in some sense, he sees that as a problem. Now let me assess that for just a moment. The first very important assessment is, if you have no place for sin, you have no place for grace. If you don't rightly define sin, you will not rightly appreciate grace. If you don't understand that how sin destroys, grace will never be the solution. So let me give you two good quotes, not by Dr. Carl Menninger, but by other authors. One is from a book I have read parts of. It's entitled, Sin and Grace in Christian Counseling. And this particular author says, uh, he says, Today we use grace as a synonym for being lenient or tolerant. Because sin has been redefined in our culture, grace in our culture is now you're just lenient. You're tolerant. What is the grace period before the deadline? How lenient will you be? How tolerant will you be? Because my problem is, I'm a pretty good person. I didn't quite make the deadline, or I'm not sure I'm going to make the deadline. How much grace do I get? How much leniency? Because my problem is small. If you don't understand sin you won't understand grace. Another author, uh, a woman who's a college professor among some other things, I've read different articles by her. Many of her articles are fascinating. Uh, She wrote a book entitled Speaking of Sin. 
And in that book, she, may, she has this phrase, sin is our only hope. Now, you could misunderstand that because in a sense, sin isn't our hope. But what she means by that, our hope is that we recognize how sinful we are so that we can appeal to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, you'll never appreciate the grace and mercy unless you understand the the depths of your sin. So in that sense, she means sin is our only hope. We need a new awareness of our sin, so we have a new awareness of our need of grace. One last quote before we get to Isaiah chapter 61. D.L. Moody was an American evangelist. He passed away in 1899. Uh, Hailed from Chicago, Moody Bible Institute is still up there and functioning. Uh, Moody Moody Press, all named after D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said this, Very few people think they are lost. You seldom meet a bankrupt sinner. Most of them think they can pay about 75 cents on the dollar, some 99 cents. They come just a little short, but the Almighty will somehow make it up. What about you? What kind of a sinner are you? Are you a sinner who you can, you can contribute 75 cents on the dollar and you need God somehow to fill in the gap for that last 25 cents? Maybe you don't give yourself that much credit. Maybe you're 55 cents on a dollar. Maybe you give yourself a little more credit. Maybe you're 75 cents on a dollar. D.L. Moody says, I very rarely meet a bankrupt sinner. It's bankrupt sinners that find the grace of God. It's sinners who, you know, in in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what D.L. Moody's talking about. What kind of a sinner are you? And you tell me what kind of a sinner you are, and I'll have some understanding of what you think grace is and how it ought to be defined. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. I think I'm... Intend on finishing up Isaiah 61 this morning. This is not going to be thorough. We're going to spend most of our time in those first three verses. And then next week we'll pick up with Isaiah 62, which I have in mind this week. We'll be done in one week, but we'll find out. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read the entire chapter, though, to begin with. It opens with Messiah speaking, the servant of the Lord. Uh, we, it opens with, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus isn't born. The eternal Son of God has always existed. Jesus had a beginning. When we use the word Jesus, we're talking about when did the eternal Son of God become what he was not. That's the name Jesus. So Jesus is a fulfillment of this. The Son of God speaking in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then from verses uh, 4 through 7, it may still be the servant of the Lord speaking. It may, it may be the Lord himself speaking. It's, it's kind of unclear. Uh, I don't know how to take that, but it reads this way. 
They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And then very clearly, in verses 8 and 9, you have the Lord God speaking. So, instead of the the Son, the eternal Son speaking, now you've got God the Father speaking in verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And then I take it the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, are again the eternal son of God speaking. So again, this is Christ Christ Jesus, our Lord, speaking again in verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Not that Christ needed saving, but the Father entrusted the work of saving to the Son. So the eternal Son of God, Christ, is, is, has the garments of salvation whereby he will bring salvation to sinners. That's uh, what's being spoken of there. Uh, he's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout out, sprout up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So let's um, go back to those first three verses. This is where we will spend most of our time. And we want to start off with the question, who does the Lord come for? It says he's coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who is he proclaiming to? Well, in Isaiah chapter 61, he's proclaiming to the poor. In Isaiah 61, he's proclaiming to the brokenhearted to the captives, to those who are bound, to those who mourn. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that's a far cry from an indiscriminate God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John 3.16 stands, the verse that I had a problem quoting last week, but for God so loved the world that he, he did give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but ever have everlasting life. That's still true. But Christ didn't come to indiscriminately say, here's the message, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He proclaimed the years of the Lord's favor to the brokenhearted, the captive, the bound, those who mourn. That's who he's proclaiming to. This is not unlike in Good News Club. Uh, This last Wednesday, we were looking, at least in my class, we were looking at these little snippets of episodes from Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2. These different instances in which Christ revealed himself as the Son of Man, as God, in those first couple chapters. We didn't quite get to an episode that comes at the 
uh, towards the middle of Mark chapter 2, where Jesus calls a tax collector, Levi, or Matthew, to be one of his followers. But in that particular episode, he calls Matthew. Matthew comes, and then Matthew uh, celebrates. He has a big feast for Jesus and all of his friends. And by all of his friends, I mean Matthew's friends, the tax collector's friends. Now, a tax collector doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh, If he were on Facebook, uh, his friend list would be very small. His only friends would be other tax collectors. His only other friends would be outcasts just like him because he wasn't accepted. He wasn't well-liked. So Matthew has this celebration for Jesus and and his disciples along with all of his other rebel-rousing friends, and the Pharisees are rather offended by this. When they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call those who were poor and depressed and brokenhearted. Those who are sinners. He came to call bankrupt sinners, not sinners that had 50 50 cents on a dollar. He didn't come to call sinners who have 75 cents on a dollar. He came to call uh, bankrupt sinners. Now, what you read in Isaiah chapter 61 also probably could or should remind you of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew's Gospel, because they're very similar. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Otherwise, I will just read them to you. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, you have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it starts off with some Beatitudes. And I'm going to read, uh, I'm not sure how far I'll read, but I'm going to start in verse 1. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, this sounds like a fulfillment, and I think it is. I think it's a fulfillment, at least one layer of fulfillment, of what is prophesied in Isaiah 61. It goes like this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same kind of categories that you read about in Isaiah chapter 61. Who did he come for? He pronounces these blessings. Now, the first 50 years of my life, I I grew up thinking or being taught or accumulation of all that, of thinking that those beatitudes are basically, it's basically these ethical achievements that people ought to strive for. You need to strive to to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you need to strive to be meek. And you need to strive to be poor in spirit. These are things you need to attain. Like, if you think you're going to get in the kingdom of heaven just because you're a member of some synagogue or some church, if you think you're going to get in the kingdom of heaven because you drop a little money in a treasury, 
wrong. You've got you've to work harder than that. You've got to achieve these things. That there are these ethical attainments. But one of the problems with that is the focus is on the person. Like somehow I'm going to achieve this? I thought it was a bankrupt sinner. Isn't that a problem? So about 12 years ago, I wound up uh, reading a book that had a whole new take on it, which now I've seen other authors say the same thing, that it's not so much we should look at these things as if the, these are ethical ideals you're, you're meant to strive after. Rather, these are pronouncements or announcements of God's grace to categories of people. William Barclay, who I know has his own set of problems, but... He has it right on this score. William Barclay says, The Beatitudes are not simple statements. They are exclamations. So that one way he would say you could translate it is, if I go back up to the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. A way to look at it is he's saying, Oh, the blessedness of being poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Those that have their own righteousness, they'll miss it. Christ came for sinners. He came for the sick. Those that are healthy, those that are well, those that are self-satisfied, they'll never understand the grace of God. They'll never understand the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. The categories of people in life that you think, oh, I would never want to be that person. You want to avoid that person. You want to avoid being that person. You don't want to have to experience that. But oh, the blessedness. You know, Ryan... Uh, my son Ryan, one of his lines, because Ryan struggled uh, probably, he's more in touch with his emotions certainly than I am, or or John. And uh, Ryan would say, uh, in the times where he's been low and brokenhearted, Ryan takes comfort in the fact that, you know, God says, uh, blessed are the, not blessed are the brokenhearted, but he's near, uh, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. You know, I'm not brokenhearted enough. And that keeps the Lord and his grace and his mercy from being near me. So Ryan took comfort in the fact he didn't really want to choose that path. It's not really what he enjoyed uh, having to go through certain times in his life. But you know what? The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. So he did take comfort in that. And I think that's exactly the meaning that's behind all of this. So if you're a sinner, I've got good news for you. The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. If you're a sinner, Paul put it this way, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I am the foremost. If you're not a sinner, Christ didn't come for you. If you're well, if things are going good, if you've got the right kind of a job and you're living your dream life now, Christ didn't come for you. He came for sinners. He came for the brokenhearted. Isaiah 61 bears that out. So what does Jesus do for those persons? What does the Son of God do for those categories of people in Isaiah 61, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound up, and those who mourn? What does he do for them? In Isaiah 61, here's what he does. He brings good news to the poor. He binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to the captives. He opens uh, opens the prison to those who are bound, and he comforts those who mourn. That's what he does. He, uh, To summarize it again, he brings good news, he proclaims liberty, he opens prison, and he comforts those who mourn. Not a word about sin, which is kind of interesting, because Christ Jesus came for sinners, 
And all you have in Isaiah chapter 61, there's no actual category of sinners. There's those who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, those that are captive, those that are bound up, those that mourn. Why not sinners in Isaiah 61? I read, I wish I could figure out how to reference these old messages out of this whole collection of books I have, and I can't, and I can't find any other pastor that knows how to understand, how to attribute where that sermon came from. Makes no sense at all to me, but it's from the 19th century. So from the late 1800s, one particular pastor said this about the poor. Quote, we have taken this word poor and narrowed it down to an application always too limited and quite often false. We have materialized, no, we have a materialized idea of poverty. That is because we have a materialized idea of wealth. Money in the bank, that's a fool's definition. When it talks about he brings good news to the poor, to limit that to people of a certain socioeconomic status is to miss the point. The poverty in Isaiah 61, the poverty in the Beatitudes is a poverty of spirit, a brokenness that's wrought by sin. That's poverty. That's true poverty. Because wealth isn't that you have money in the bank or a good retirement fund or a good future. That's not true wealth. And it's not true poverty, just the fact that you may not have money. So there is a spiritual dimension to all that. So far as liberty, the same author says, it is the tragedy of history that the cry, down with the tyrants, has so often come from the lips of those who have never seen where the real tyrannies of life lie. They are not in the external circumstances of life, but the very essence and substance of life. What is our culture's problem? It's not, it's not primarily social structures that have gone awry. It's not systemic anything. Our greatest problem is ourselves. It's inside, not outside. I'm not advocating that the church has nothing to say regarding inequalities of life and injustices and systems. The Bible talks about that as well. But our greatest problem, our greatest need, is much bigger than reordering society. It has to do with sinners being converted and recognizing their bankruptcy so they can be saved by the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the foundation of the gospel on which everything else builds. On which everything else builds. Speaking of this liberty... You may be familiar, familiar with a, a woman, a French woman. She lived from 1648 to 1717. Her name was Madame Guyon. Uh, probably the worst devotional effort I ever made in our family was I kind of was intrigued by some of her quotes. So I tried to read some, uh, some sort of a biography or some synopsis of Madame Guyon's life. And I wound up being bored with it. I'm quite sure the whole family was bored with it. And I pressed on for much longer than I should have. But there you have it. But Madame Guyon did quote, does have a wonderful little poem. She uh, married at 15 because she was forced into marriage. Her marriage lasted 13 years. Her husband died. Uh, she was a mystic, which has its own set of problems. It would seem that she was a believer, though. She was a, 
she followed Christ. I think she had some baggage along the way. But because she didn't fit the normal categories of Christianity that were known at that time, she was confined in a convent. So she was kind of housebound, imprisoned. And she wrote this little poem. It's beautiful. I'm going to read four or five verses. It's called, A Little Bird I Am. Madame Guyon writes, A little bird I am, shut in from fields of air. And in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God, it pleases thee. Not not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long. And he whom I most love to please, doth listen to my song. He caught and bound my wandering wing, and still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, abroad I cannot fly, but though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul. Somebody set free, and yet in a sense you would look at her and say she's bound. She's captive. Her last verse. Oh, it is good to soar these bolts and bars above to him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love, and in thy mighty will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. That's somebody who's, a, who's an expression of exactly how Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Her circumstances didn't change. But she recognized she has a liberty to soar, to enjoy the provid- God's good providence to her, even in circumstances of life which seem like they need solved. I think Sarah asked, my Sarah asked last week, well, what, you know, how do we look at he sets free those who are captive when John the Baptist was captive and he wound up being beheaded in prison? Oh, John the Baptist was free. John the Baptist was free. It didn't mean he didn't lose his life. It didn't mean that he wasn't beheaded. But what was most precious, what could never be taken away, couldn't be taken away. He was free in knowing Jesus was Messiah. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. That's what Jesus does for those categories of people. And to what end? To what end? What is being accomplished by him doing these things? In those first three verses, still in Isaiah 61, we're given two purpose statements. At the end of verse 3, it says, That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. That, second reason, the higher reason, that he may be glorified. John the Baptist was called an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and all that, that God would be glorified. That kind of reminds me of Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which says, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You can kill the body. And there's, there are stories in church history where different saints have been martyred, and they're like, bring it. I mean, do what you got to do. I'm not going to renounce my Lord. He's never done me an injustice. I'm not going to stop renouncing him now. I'm not going to cease being who I am in Christ now. I'm free, and you can't take that from me. You can destroy my life circumstances, but you can't take what is most precious. You can't take the pearl of great price. You can't take the treasure that was hidden in a field and now is mine. 
And then verses 4 to 7, this, uh, this great outcome is expanded upon. So they're going to be called tr- oaks of righteousness. This uh, a greater result is viewed in verses 4 to 7. Let me reread those verses to you. They shall, and the they refers to, in, in the context, it's the Jewish people. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up their raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers, Gentiles, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God, and you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast." Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is one of the common themes in Isaiah, especially 40 to 66, a theme of great reversal. Because Isaiah, you have these, you have very low periods of Isaiah where the sin seems It seems unsolvable. Things couldn't be worse. But somehow there will be a great reversal where everything that had gone gone wrong is now fixed and everything is right. So it's a great reversal. Everything seems so broken. The city walls were torn down. The temple was burned and ransacked. And everything is made right again. And how are we to understand that? Is this a literal fulfillment? Am I to take this literally? Or is this a metaphorical picture? I'll leave that up to you. I haven't decided. I haven't got that figured out yet. It could be one, it could be the other. Uh, I'm not gonna, at this point, I'm not gonna be surprised by other. There may be a third option that will surprise me. But right now, uh, I'm not sure. It could be a whole millennial kingdom and, and things are rebuilt and, and there's a sense in which I, I do know the Bible does have this other principle where it keeps talking about to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jew first, also to the Gentile. Gentiles benefit from this new covenant, but it's to the Jew first. Maybe all this is an outworking of that. Maybe it's just a picture. I know it's a picture of grace is greater than sin. Mercy triumphs over justice. I know that's true, and I think that's the main takeaway. And then you've got the Lord speaking in 8 and 9, the servant speaking again in 10 to 11, and I'm done early for me. What are your thoughts or comments? Mildred. I think that there's certainly some aspects in which that has to be a layer fulfillment. And by layer, I mean the Jews did come back from exile, and the Jews did rebuild the walls, and they did rebuild the temple. But to say that was all that Isaiah envisioned, that would fall, I, I, I can't go there either. But yes, I think there were layers in which that was fulfilled, and that would be one. That would be, millennium would be a greater fulfillment. Yeah, that would be, I would be one way to look at it. Somebody else? Cindy? Okay, then I'm going to go with I don't know. Lori? Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate fulfillment for sure. So, so you've got, you've got people, like I'm not saying, uh, when I say that they're primarily not an ethical, um, an ethical ideal, 
I'm not saying that Christians, we shouldn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. That kind of goes back to something. I think we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think our prayer should be, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But ultimately, in my hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if I think I'm going to make good so much on a dollar, I will fall flat. Ultimately, Christ is the fulfillment of that. He became the, he did the, he, he was, he was good on the dollar. I mean, if the dollar was required, Christ paid in full. He paid in full. It's a positive righteousness. Uh, the reformers oftentimes talked about a positive righteousness. Christ didn't just bear away our sin. He didn't just become a curse of sin for taking my sin upon him. He also is, is uh, the dispenser of a positive righteousness. He lived in perfect obedience to his father. He without he lived without sin, and so that positive righteousness is given to believers, and my sin is given to him. Somebody else? Uh, I'm so much more satisfied in Isaiah 61, instead of trying to figure out exactly how to understand all this prophecy and just taking it for what it is uh, and getting the main point out of it, I found it personally very refreshing this week. So next week we'll be in Isaiah chapter 62. Carrie? Yes. Abraham's covenant leads to this everlasting covenant. It's not exactly a restating. It's, it's a building upon. So what God promised Abraham requires an everlasting covenant where God uh, accomplishes everything that was promised to Abraham. God accomplished... God fulfills it and brings it to an accomplishment by what he does entirely. Because the Jews couldn't do it by keeping Mosaic law. I mean, with Abraham, it's in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I mean, this all kind of fits with that because he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. I will bless those who bless you. And the day of of the Lord's vengeance, I will curse those who curse you. That all fits with that. So it's... uh, it's understanding better how the Lord is going to keep all those promises to Abraham. Abraham's promise is still good. The only covenant that was there for a time that was fulfilled and set aside is Mosaic covenant. That's out of Galatians. Galatians makes that very clear. It was added alongside for a time until Christ. And once Christ came, Mosaic covenant was no longer needed because Christ brings everlasting covenant. He brings a new covenant. 